We are beginning a new series in the Gospel of Matthew. I am fired up about this. This gospel has gotten under my skin and kind of in my bones, and I'm loving it, loving it, loving it. It's the first account that we find in the New Testament. So I want to start with this idea of Christology. Big theological word, Christology. Christology seeks to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? Christology answers the question, who is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth? A major survey this year done by a ligonier, it's called the State of Theology Survey, it found that 52% of Americans believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but that he is not God. So for the first time, the majority in America says that they do not hold a belief that Jesus of Nazareth is God. Now, here's what's really troubling about that survey. 30% of evangelicals agreed. 30% of evangelicals agreed that Jesus is a good teacher, but that he is not God. So that's the state of kind of just where we are in our country. We are very much post-Christian. Our country, we are post-Christian. We are living in a, a secular age right now. And so in many ways, as the people of God, as those who are the church, uh, we find ourselves uh, in a bit of exile right now. And so our posture um, should be one of seeing ourselves in exile in some ways. Now, there have been all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is. Um, I'll give you some examples from um, just some moderns among us, uh, 1800s, 1900s, 2000s. Is anybody familiar with Joe Rogan? He has the most uh, popular podcast in the United States. It's, he, he drops cuss words on a regular basis and has some really wacky theories. Um, and sometimes I listen, but always I listen with a filter. Joe Rogan, uh, he posits, he thinks that this is a viable, uh, that this is a viable hypothesis about Jesus. Christianity came into being through people taking psychedelic mushrooms and seeing Jesus through their hallucinations. That's a viable hypothesis, the Joe Rogan. It's, he did not come up with it, but uh, it was popularized by an author in the 1970s. Uh, he wrote a book called The Mushroom and the Cross, I believe. Uh, an atheist, a popular atheist, Richard Dawkins, he says this about Jesus. If he had the knowledge that we have today, he probably would have been an atheist. If Jesus had the knowledge that we have today, he probably would have been an atheist. So Dawkins does not believe that Jesus is God in any way. Kanye, Justin Bieber, Chance the Rapper. These guys all believe that Jesus is God, and they are seeking in some ways to live as such. Michael Jordan, at one point, uh, he thought that we needed a black Jesus too, and so he nominated himself for the role. (laughs) Charles Darwin, in a letter to a friend, I do not believe in the Bible as a divine revelation and therefore not in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So this is some record of people and what their thoughts on and thoughts have been on on Jesus in the modern age. Now, um, various world religions have opinions on Jesus too. Jews uh, believe that Jesus was very much a false prophet and that he deserved the death that he got. They still hold that to this day. Muslims believe that Jesus was a great prophet, and in the Quran they honor Jesus as such, but they do not believe that he was God or God's son. They have no capacity to believe God having a son in their worldview. Hindus, they believe that Jesus was a holy man. They believe that Jesus was a wise teacher and that he was a God, one of the millions of gods in Hinduism. Buddhists believe that Jesus was an enlightened man and a wise teacher. 
Catholics believe almost all, if not all, about the historical Jesus as evangelicals do. Cults. Now, uh, it's, it's normative uh, to see uh, LDS as, uh, as uh, probably more mainline religion, but I think there are still some parameters that, that, that say that Mormonism is still in the category of cult. They believe that Jesus and Satan are brothers and that Jesus is uh, 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 created by the Father, is a man. Um, created by the Father, so at one point Jesus did not exist, and they believe that the Father that he was created by was also a man at one point in his history. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus Christ is God's firstborn son, uh, that he is created, and that he is inferior to God the Father, and they have revised and edited the scriptures to make it so in their translation, the world translation. Scientology, uh, they believe that Jesus is one of many good teachers. He's just simply a good teacher. And now here's one you may not have heard of, realism. Has anyone heard of the, the cult realists, realism here? They, they teach that human life was created intentionally by aliens who later sent alien messengers in human form to check in on things. And two of those human messengers were Jesus and Buddha. So I don't mean to laugh, but it's... We're not looking at the historical record, apparently. There has also been a lot of biblical confusion and also some clarity in the record of the scriptures about who Jesus was, okay? Jesus famously would ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Well, people, people on the street, they're talking, they're saying, maybe you're Elijah from the Old Testament and you've returned, or maybe John the Baptist, we know he's been beheaded by Herod, but maybe you are John the Baptist, returned Messiah here. People, Jews, for sure believe that Jesus was a false prophet and they put him to death as such. Uh, people, I'm sure, held the view that Jesus was simply a wandering teacher and he was pretty good at it and potentially a miracle worker, but the question of God, nowhere in their category. But also, there were some people who said, you're the Christ, we'll follow you. It was, a few, it was very few people in his day actually came to that confession while he was still alive. The record of Acts tells us there were only about 120 people at the time of his resurrection, who were his devoted disciples gathered together in the city of Jerusalem. He appeared to more than 500, so there were probably more disciples that weren't kind of attached to this crew of 120, but somewhere between 120 and 500 people confessed that Jesus was the Christ. So with all of these voices on who Jesus is, got all of these voices, not just in our modern day, but also throughout history saying, we know who Jesus is. We have, a, we have a hypothesis on that. What's the best way for us to come to clarity? What's the best way for us to come to clarity? The best way for us to come to clarity is to go as close to the source as we possibly can. And so we dive into Matthew's gospel this morning. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus and also a friend of Jesus. Matthew lived with Jesus for three years as Jesus traveled throughout Israel, throughout Judea, preaching the good news, the coming of his kingdom. So Matthew knew Jesus very, very, very well. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a bit of an intro on this gospel. So I'm going to kind of give you some of the, the high points around this text. I want to help you orient it, uh, orient yourself to it. I want to help you think about it. So uh, author, 
Matthew, date and audience here. Trustworthy, uh, trustworthy scholars agree that this gospel, this um, book of good news was written by Matthew, someone who the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke also call Levi. It's possible that this guy, Matthew, had two names, that his name was simply Matthew Levi. It was very common in that culture, but also because it was a, a, a multicultural or multilinguistic society, uh, there, there were different names and different translations. So we know Know that Matthew is referred to as Matthew and also as a man named Levi and the other gospels. He was a Jew who had turned his back on the people Israel and had become a tax collector for the Romans. So the Romans were uh, oppressing uh, Israel, occupying Israel, and they uh, exerted taxes on the Israelites that they did not want to pay. And the Israel, these tax collectors were Jews who were working for the Romans, so they were a bit of a bridge between the two uh, societies or the two cultures, but they were hated by their own people as traitors. They were hated and despised as traitors. Now, Matthew had an encounter with the real Jesus while he was literally sitting at his tax booth, and he chose to leave everything that he had come to live for in order to follow this rabbi. He wanted to follow Jesus as a rabbi. In some ways, um, this was Matthew's opportunity to reassimilate back into his own people. Maybe, perhaps, it was a shot at redemption. That he, 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 he was looking for redemption and Jesus being maybe a bridge back to his own people, but he had a very small view of how big that redemption would actually be as he followed this rabbi. Matthew was likely written sometime in the 50s or the 60s AD. So Jesus was crucified somewhere between 30 and 33 AD. So Matthew was written approximately 20 years in an oral culture, a storytelling culture, a culture where memorization was a thing um, held by common people. It was likely written about two decades uh, after Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Many, if not most, of all of the people who lived with Jesus were still alive at that time. Uh, some people think that Matthew was written far later. They think it was written like in the 90s AD. But the way that Matthew speaks about a key historic event in Matthew 25, this destruction of the temple of Jerusalem, he was speaking of it as an event that was yet to come. He did not revise his text. Now, the temple was destroyed and sieged. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and sieged by the Romans in 70 AD. So it's likely that Matthew was written pre the, t the temple's destruction, 70 AD here. Um, a, an early church father, a man named Irenaeus, uh, he wrote in 175 AD that he wrote this. He said that Matthew's gospel was written while Peter and Paul were both still alive. Paul died sometime between 64 and 67 AD. So I say all that to say that there's historical claim here that this, this gospel of Matthew was an early text Okay? In any case, Matthew's gospel, why does it come as the first book in your New Testament? It comes as the first book in the New Testament because um, it's been long held that Matthew was the first gospel written. Long held. And up until recent scholarship, uh, the, now scholars are positing that Matthew, uh, that, that the first gospel was actually Mark because so much of Matthew and Luke both lean on Mark for their source material. There's some phrases here that are verbatim, and then Matthew will kind of take that and then he'll open it up and give his own perspective on it. 
<clears throat> there's far more about that that we can get into now. It's technical, and, and this isn't the place for it. But who was Matthew written to? Why, why is this in your Bible? Why was it written and penned in the first place? Matthew was probably writing to disciples who were both Jewish and Greek. So he's writing to a mixed culture, but he had um, one kind of cultural person in view, most likely, as he's writing this. There's a heavy emphasis from Matthew on the Old Testament, showing how Jesus is the coming Messiah, the promised Messiah, and how he is the fulfillment of the Messiah. So over and over and over again in Matthew, you'll read things like, thus it was written, and thus it was fulfilled. It came to pass that. So Matthew likely had had converts from Judaism as um, the audience for this gospel, people who were Jews but had begun to follow Jesus Christ. He's intensely focused on showing from the Old Testament that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah promised to come through Abraham, through Moses, through David as well. Now, why did Matthew go to all of this trouble to write this down, to record the life and the teaching of Jesus? There's a host of reasons, but there's just one that I want to lay before you this morning about why, what was some of Matthew's motivation to write this down? As a tax collector, Matthew would have been very literate, very, very literate in his society. And not only would he have been literate, but he would have been trained in a type of shorthand record keeping. So he was a master record keeper. It's likely that he remembered Jesus' teaching. Remember, they're living in an oral culture. Right? But Jesus, uh, it's likely that Matthew also took notes shorthand over those three years that he lived with Jesus. So this gospel, the gospel of Matthew, it, it became a sort of disciple-making manual in the early church that they would lean on to see who Jesus was. They wanted to show, he wanted to show his readers who Jesus was as well as exactly what Jesus taught what Jesus said. This gospel, this is one of the reasons that I'm so excited about Matthew's gospel. It contains more of Jesus's teaching than any other gospel. It's just rife with, you've heard it said, but I say to you, it's ripe with his teaching. It's all over the pages. I was saying this to our team this morning as we began to set up. Uh, we preached through Mark not too long ago, about a year and a half ago, and Mark shows Jesus as a man of action. It's just a quick and concise gospel. And we learn about um, who Jesus is and what it means to follow Jesus by looking at what Jesus did and also about what Jesus said to other people. But what's different about Matthew is he gets us right into the first person, into kind of the red letter and says, like, this is Jesus's body of teaching. In fact, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7 are this famous Sermon on the Mount. It's almost exclusively Jesus in the first person just teaching. So Matthew is taking on Jesus's voice here. I'm excited about that because in our culture today, we need to know what Jesus taught. We don't need to have it told to us, but we need to come face to face. We do need to have it told to us, but importantly, we need to come face to face with, with the record of Jesus's actual teaching. And so I'm excited about that. Here's why. Because secular culture is discipling us at a rate faster than many of us are being discipled by Jesus. The voices pouring in from all of the different avenues in our culture are forming you. 
They're forming you. The things that you're listening to, the things that you're seeing, and I'm not just talking about advertising. I'm talking about television. I'm talking about Netflix. I'm talking about cultural analysis. I'm talking about cultural values. Whatever puts that stuff forward, it's forming you and I, and it's forming us at a rate that is alarming. And it's forming the church at a rate that is very alarming. First and foremost, we are disciples of Jesus, not CNN, not Fox News, not those on Facebook, not those on Instagram. They are not our disciplers. That's a a value position. I am a disciple of Jesus. I'm a Christian even before I'm an American. I am a follower of Jesus even before I am an American. He is my first allegiance. And that's what he calls all of his people to throughout all ages in all times. To be Christians who are Americans, not Americans who are Christians. There's a difference. Now, there are all kinds of uh, features uh, in this gospel. Uh, we're, um, as we're reading through this gospel, we're not just looking at the, per- the person in our focus, Jesus Christ, but we're also do- we're doing two things simultaneously as we're reading Matthew. We're looking back at history, the history of the world, really, and we're also looking forward to the new future. We're looking forward. Uh, this gospel is a unique genre. We often think of gospels as being biographies. Is that kind of how you tend to think of a gospel as a biography? That's not wrong. There's biography in this gospel, but it's far more than a biography. It's, it's, it's part the history of a person, but it's showing, Matthew means to show us a history of redemption here. Okay? To say it another way, the gospel isn't merely history, but redemptive history. This gospel is meant to show us what God is up to in the world. A man named Jonathan Pennington said, this is good news, not just a biography. And so what this means as we're reading this gospel is we're not just looking at the person in our focus, but we're looking back and we're looking forward at the same time. The gospels are telling us a macro story. They're telling us a macro story through the story of Jesus Christ, through the Messiah's story here. You're going to see all kinds of things in Matthew's gospel. You're going to see genealogy. You're going to see biography. You're going to see typologies, how Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, how he's like Moses, how he's like Solomon, how he's like Jonah, how he's like Adam. You're going to see birth stories, miracle stories. You're going to see narrative. You're going to hear the proclamation of good news. You're going to see over and over again, about 25 times, promise and fulfillment. Matthew quotes the Old Testament repeatedly to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. We're going to see and hear ethical teaching, teaching on wise living. We're going to hear commands come to bear on us. We're going to hear resurrection stories, and we're also going to hear commissions, the great commission. 28 chapters, 1,071 verses, 18,346 words. It's a huge body of work here, and we are in for a ride, and I am pumped. How long is this going to take? We'll see. We'll see. You excited? There it is. How about we start by getting into genealogy, (laughs) right? Open your Bibles, open your journals, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Now, I'm going to be answering the question from here on out, why a genealogy? So don't tune out on me. 
as I read these. Now, one other hint, if you're ever like in Bible study or in that awkward environment where somebody asks you to read um, a passage of scripture and it's just chock full of like ancient names, what you do is you just act like you know how they're pronounced. This is one of the areas that I would just really encourage you to fake it until you make it, all right? There's not many avenues that I would encourage you on that, but when you're reading Bible names, just fake it until you make it, all right? So I'm gonna probably do a bit of that this morning as well. This is God's word, Matthew chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. If you're pregnant and need names for your children, this is a good place to go. (laughs) And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Are you with me? After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. Now, I've got four points for you this morning. Why does Matthew start with a genealogy? Why does Matthew start with a genealogy? One, he starts with the genealogy to show that Jesus' story is true and anchored in history. Uh, we'll come back to these. So I'm just going to give you a quick summary right now and point you to where we're going, and then I'll come back to these and hit them, and they'll be on the screen. So we want to see that Jesus' story is, a true, is true and is anchored in history. But Matthew also starts with the genealogy because it summarizes the storyline of the Hebrew Bible. It also highlights Jesus' inclusive family, and it reveals that Jesus is the hope of the world. There's more to this genealogy than that, but that's what we can get to this morning. So here's my first point. Um, Matthew starts with the genealogy to show that Jesus' story is true and is anchored in history. 
Now, the Greek word that Matthew uses here in the first line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, it's the Greek word genesis. Genesis. Say it with me. Genesis. Say it again. What does that sound like? Genesis. What do you think that his modern, that his readers at the time, what do you think they would have in mind as they heard that? Genesis. He quotes, he says, this is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. In fact, in the Greek, there is no word the, there is no word of here. It's only eight, that first line is only eight, work, eight words in Greek. It's 16 words in English because we got to add all the ofs and the thes in there. Greeks would literally have heard book Genesis, book Genesis. R.T. France, he's a commentator on Matthew's gospel. He says, in effect, in his very first sentence, by saying the book of Genesis, Matthew is suggesting something to his readers here, right at the very beginning. He's suggesting that the coming of Jesus is a new beginning. The coming of Jesus is a new creation. That God is doing something in the world that harkens all the way back to the very first page of your Bibles in Genesis chapter 1. Matthew begins here with the book of Genesis, the the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It means Messiah here. He says, he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what Matthew is doing here is he's linking Jesus. He's embedding him in the Old Testament's history and in the lineage of its most important people and prophets and kings. The link to Abraham here likely suggests that Jesus is a true Jew. Abraham called, or God called Abraham out of his people group when there were no Hebrews, there were no Jews, and he made him the first Jew and he gave him the promises. That's why, Abra, that's why God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what Matthew is wanting his readers to, to know here and to see is that Jesus is a true Jew in the lineage, in the promise line of Abraham. Now, he's also linking him to David, the king of David, uh, the King David in Israel. It suggests that Jesus is not only a true Jew, but he's also a true king. And he's not only a true Jew and a true king, but he's also the true Messiah. And so Matthew's first line here in this gospel sets up this genealogy, which we just read. Now, um, recently I took some 23andMe DNA tests. Have you guys ever heard of these, these DNA tests in them? Yeah. Uh, um, I found out I wanted to see like where my ethnic history lied because um, I've heard just kind of like off the cuff from both sides of the family, well, you're a little bit British, you're a little bit Dutch, you probably have some Cherokee in you and maybe a few other things. I don't know. And I just, it just, it, it, we, we hadn't kept a very solid history as a family um, ethnically. And so I just wanted to know like what kind of blood is running through my veins. And so I got my test results back. Come to find out, I'm 99.9% white. (laughs) You already knew that. (laughs) I was maybe hoping for a little multiculturalism in there, but 
I, that's what came back. So um, one of the features also of 23andMe here is that there's a family tree included. So other people who take these genealogy tests, then they'll kind of map them out and they'll show you like your links, your ancestral links. Come to find out, lo and behold, I have a third cousin living in Spokane. I'm connected to this third cousin through our great, great, great grandparents. Kind of wild. No real like link. We probably, until we both took this test and looked at it, he may not even know because he took it before I did, that I exist as well. Um, my point in, in saying this about a family tree and it being of some interest is this. Matthew does not start with a fairy tale saying once upon a time. Matthew starts with a genealogy. He starts with a family tree. He starts with a real historical record of people who have really lived. A scholar on Matthew, Patrick Schreiner, he says, the Jewish hopes they centered around a genealogy because they were promised a child from the family of Israel. Matthew's story, it shows us that Jesus is no myth. His story is no myth. This is the narrative of the historical Jesus Christ who has a family lineage and who was born in the line of David. Matthew here, he starts with the genealogy to show his readers that Jesus of Nazareth is anchored in real history. This is not a fairy tale saying once upon a time. This is real history. Here's my second point. It summarizes. Why a genealogy? Because the genealogy summarizes the storyline of the Hebrew Bible. This genealogy, it summarizes the storyline of the Hebrew Bible. Now, this is hard to see without some help, but once you see it, once you land your eyes on it, you're not going to be able to unsee it. There is someone else here who is named indirectly. He's not named directly, but the Jewish readers, as soon as they heard this opening line of Matthew's genealogy, they would have had this person in mind. Who do you think it would have been? Book of Genesis book of Genesis. Who's the first person in the book of Genesis? Adam. And the first line here, he is invoking Adam by restating book of Genesis. In effect, in one sentence, Matthew has summarized the storyline of the entire Bible. The first human, the first Jew, the true king. Patrick, Patrick Schreiner says this. This will kind of unpack that a little bit for you. The explicit phrase here, you'll see it on the screen in Greek. It's biblos genesis, or genesis. The book of genealogy, the book of Genesis occurs in the Greek Old Testament in only two places. So in the Greek Old Testament, it occurs in only two places. It occurs in Genesis 2.4, and it occurs in Genesis 5.1. Genesis 2.4, it's about the origin of heaven and earth, which is speaking of a place. But in 5.1, it concerns the origin of Adam and Eve, people. And so what Schreiner says here is, from the beginning, God was in the business of establishing his people in his place by his power. It began with Adam and Eve. It continued in the covenants given to Abraham and also David and are finally fulfilled in Jesus. He is the Davidic king who will establish Israel's kingdom. 
Schreiner goes on to say, though, the Old Testament can be confusing as a literary document. Matthew tells us to look at these key people. So that's what he's doing to us as modern readers. Look at these key people and look at the promises that are given to these key people as well to help frame how we read this story. Matthew's first words summarize the whole storyline so far. Now, this is really important here. The gospel of Matthew is best understood. It's best understood by us as readers with one eye looking back into the old story and the other eye attuned to shifts in the new story. It's best looked at with one eye to the old story and one eye looking forward to the shifts that are coming in the new story, okay? So, Matthew starts with the genealogy to show that, that, that Jesus of Nazareth is anchored in real history, to show that his genealogy summarizes the storyline of the Hebrew Bible. My third point is high, he's highlighting Jesus's inclusive family. This is probably the one internally, just personally, that fires me up the most. There is so much rich history in this genealogy. We look at a genealogy and we're like, ugh, and the eyes gloss over and we just skip it. Are you really going to read that this morning? Yes. Yes, absolutely. We're going to read it because it's full of rich history. But if we don't know these people and if we don't know their stories, it's not rich history. It's just silly names on a page. But when we start to establish their names to real stories, then it comes alive for us, all right? One thing that I find really compelling in this genealogy is the highlight of five women here in this genealogy. I want you to circle them. If you've got a pen, I want you to circle them. So in a patriarchal society, women are rarely mentioned. Primarily it's men. Even in this genealogy, primarily it's men. But there are some unusual women who are mentioned in this genealogy. So in verse three, you have Tamar, circle her name. In verse 5, you have two people, Rahab and Ruth. Circle their names. You also have a reference to the wife of Uriah the Hittite. This would be a woman who David took as his wife. Her name was Bathsheba. You'll find her in verse 7. And then you also have Mary in verse 16. So circle these women's names. Now, four of these five women are likely Gentiles. Four out of these five are likely Gentiles, that is to say non-Jews. They were not in the lineage of Israel officially. Jewish history teaches us that Tamar was probably a Canaanite woman who converted and immigrated into Israel, assimilated into the people Israel. Rahab was a Canaanite woman. Ruth was a Moabite woman. And Uriah's wife was likely a Hittite woman like her husband. Only Mary was from the house of Israel. So what is he doing in drawing these women in to this genealogy? In drawing these women into this genealogy, Matthew is highlighting that Jesus' family includes those from the nations. We're going to start seeing this theme. We're going to see it. If you look at, at the very last um, two verses, three verses of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28, Jesus will commission his disciples to go out to the nations. This is a, uh, a there's a theological um, device that, uh, that these writers in the New Testament would use. And one way to think of it easily is the top and the tail. 
The top of the tail is at the beginning of a gospel or the beginning of a New Testament letter, you're going to see some themes that are going to guide it, and then they're going to summarize those themes or point back to those themes in the tail of the book. So you look at the top of the book and you look at the tail of the book. You're seeing these women from the nations here in the genealogy, and then Jesus will commission his disciples out into the nations. We're going to see a a top and tail moment next week too in Jesus' title, Emmanuel as well. It's just a teaser. Come back. Another compelling fact about how this genealogy includes um, people from the nations, it shows how Jesus' family is inclusive, is that many, if not most of the people in this genealogy have really troubled histories, really troubled histories. Abraham basically pimped out his wife on two different occasions in order to save his own skin. As he was going into Egypt, he said, tell him you're my sister, that'll, that'll save us. And she was under great threat of being taken in by these Egyptians and brought into a harem and, and used by these Egyptians. Yet God was faithful to her and spared her from harm. David stole the wife of a loyal soldier and then had that loyal soldier murdered. Jacob was known as a liar and a deceiver. Judah slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, because she posed as a prostitute. You have this right in the first six verses. There's 17 verses of genealogy here, 16 solid verses of genealogy here. The women have histories in this genealogy as well. Tamar, she wanted to have children to carry on the family name in Israel. Her husband had died, and it was, uh, it was law back then. It was known that the, the brothers of this man who would die would take the widow and that they would help her carry on the family name, but none of the, brother, the brothers would reject her. And so she wanted to carry on the family name, and so she actually ended up um, posing as a prostitute to her father-in-law, and her father-in-law impregnated her, and she had a child. Rahab was a prostitute as well, but the Lord used her to shelter Israelite spies in the city of Jericho. You'll read that in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. Bathsheba was taken advantage of by David. She was abused sexually. Her husband murdered. Ruth, uh, she was questionable in some of her own conduct with Boaz. Mary was accused of adultery, and she was accused of cheating on Joseph. And so you see in these women's stories, you see uh, unjust accusation, you see questionable behavior, you see stories of shame, you see stories of abuse, and yet Scripture vindicates each of these women. God is pleased to bring his son through their line and through their stories. If we'll have eyes to see it, God's grace is all over this genealogy. And if we'll have eyes to see it, God's grace is all over your life too. Do you have eyes? Do you have eyes to see that? Do you have eyes to see God's grace on your life? The things that you've done, the things that you've not done, the ways that you've sinned against him. Schreiner, he writes, three of these women, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, they're characterized by tenacious fidelity. That means that they're super loyal. Tamar is loyal to her family. Rahab is loyal to Yahweh despite not being a part of the nation. And Ruth forsakes her idols and follows Naomi's God. And then Schreiner writes, Jesus welcomes those who are fiercely loyal to him. Think about his own mom. 
Think about Mary and her fierce loyalty to her son. Stood by him, treasured these things in her heart, shepherded him, protected him, was there at the cross witnessing his death. Here's my last point, that this genealogy reveals that Jesus is the hope of the world. Here's what's so interesting about Matthew's gospel to me. Matthew's genealogy is what breaks the silence of the Old Testament. His genealogy is what breaks the silence of the Old Testament. It's the genesis of a new era where the Old Testament canon left off. For 400 years in Israel, the prophets have been silent. And now that silence is broken by a son. God is speaking. Not only would Jesus come as the great prophet, and he wouldn't only speak from God, but that he would speak to the people of Israel as God He'd come to be our priest and secure our righteousness through his costly sacrifice. He'd come to occupy the throne of his ancestor David, but instead of ruling over one people group, he would rule over the nations. And he would not just rule over the nations, but he would rule over the nations in justice and in truth and in power and in righteousness. The genealogy of this king who rules the nations, has become your family tree. Where we come from matters. If you have people in your family history who are shady and who are criminals and who are just the shistiest people imaginable, what do you do? You try to distance yourself from them. Do you not? You try to rewrite that history in some ways. But if you have people in your family histories who are noble and loyal and full of honor and goodness, what do you do? You take on some of that character. You embrace it. You puff up a bit. So-and-so is in my family line, or he was a man like this, or I'm a son of 10 preachers, or something like that. You, you embrace these family histories. And you try to, in some ways, embody their qualities and live out of that identity. How much more with Jesus Christ? We have been adopted into the family of God, and therefore we're sons and daughters of the one true, one true God, brought into the family by the one true Messiah and King. And God has pledged himself to those who have sinned mightily. Hear me here. I've got two more minutes. Wake back up. Jostle back awake. God has pledged himself to those who have sinned mightily. Those who keep coming back to him in repentance, awareness of sin, awareness of failure, awareness of weakness. Those who keep coming back to him in repentance of sin and renewed faith. We see that in this genealogy. We see his faithfulness in this genealogy. And he is the God who does not change, which means something for you and I that his character holds firm for you and I. His character holds firm as he has pledged himself to them, so he pledges himself to you and I. And we cannot, hear me, outsin the faithfulness of God. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. Your story does not define you if the living God is for you. You cannot outsin his faithfulness. We have seen it in history. Let's not test it with our own history. But let's walk toward him in faith 
and faithfulness. Now, conclusion, who is Jesus? This idea of Christology. People have all kinds of things to say about his identity, but have they read the source materials like you have? Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, John's gospel. Most people haven't, but they're passing on kind of... um, foolishness that has been handed down to them, like Jesus is the result of a massive hallucination by people who ate psychedelic mushrooms. That's foolishness. When we want to get clarity around who someone is, we go to the sources. We go to those closest to them. And so, as you interact with Matthew's eyewitness testimony regarding Jesus, here's the question. Who do you say that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth is? Who do you say that he is? If you say that he's the promised Messiah and you say that he's the promised Lord, then there are implications. There are implications for our lives. And the first implication for us is yielding. It's yielding our will to his will. And so where do you have a sense this morning that he's speaking to you, that he's confirming to you, that you can trust him, that you can look with your honest questions into his life and his history, into the promises of Israel. Who do you say that Jesus is this morning? That is the most important question you will ever ask, and it's not a question to ask once. It's a question to ask daily. Because as we begin to ask the question, who do you say Jesus is daily, it reorients our moments, it reorients our minutes, and it reorients our hours. Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word. Thank you for breaking the silence of the Old Testament with the voice and the life of your Son. So as your people, we open our hands to you. We submit ourselves to you. We keep coming back to you, recognizing that we are weak and we sin against you often. And yet you continue to renew your people. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.